Thank you for having me. I am very happy and glad to be here with you this morning. And I want to take this opportunity to praise God who facilitated for us in His providential care this gathering to talk about a dear person to us and a dear person to God. As you know, the Da Vinci Code, the movie, and before that the novel, speaks about Jesus and presents Jesus in a way that he was a mortal human being. For people of the Christian faith who revere Jesus as God or as one person of the Trinity, there's no doubt the presentation of the Da Vinci Code might be offensive to them, even though if it says on its fiction. Imagine if we as Muslims, somebody writes a story about Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and he depicts him in a way that does not reflect what we perceive to be his reality, even though if he might say on that book it's fiction, it will still be offensive to people of the Muslim faith. So with that point being made, I would like to proceed talking about the Da Vinci Code. No matter what you think now of the Da Vinci Code, the good news is this movie, this novel brought Jesus to the minds of hundreds of millions of people. And that is good. And the fact is that Jesus is a very controversial figure. Throughout history, people have disagreed about Jesus. And the controversy about him includes speculations ranging from him being a liar bastard to him being Almighty God. I would like to just give you a rundown of the statements that have been said about Jesus. As you know, Islamic theology teaches that Jesus was a human being who was born miraculously without a biological father and he was the messenger of God. We have Unitarian Christians that believe in Jesus to be the Son of God but not God the Son. They make a huge difference between understanding the Son of God and the God the Son. And we have some Unitarian Christians that believe in Jesus to be a messenger of God. And then we have Trinitarian Christians. Trinitarian Christians believe in Jesus to be one person of a triune God. To them, God is a tri-personal being, which means Jesus is eternal, self-existent, who does not take his existence from anyone. One leading Christian theologian said in his book, Concise Theology, the three persons of the Holy Trinity are eternal and self-existent, partaking equally of all aspects and attributes of a deity, and always acting in cooperative solidarity. But the unchanging cooperative pattern is that the second and the third persons identify with the purpose of the first. So the second person becomes the father's executive and the spirit acts as an agent of both. And some Trinitarian Christians have disagreed concerning the reality of Jesus. For example, you have the Menephysite Christians. The Menephysite Christians believe that Jesus had one nature, and this nature is the product of the unity of Christ's 
divinity and humanity being brought together. And then you have the Nestorian Church, which taught that the human and the divine essences of Christ are separate. And they are actually two persons, the man Jesus Christ and the divine Logos, which dwelt in the man. In consequence, they reject such ideas that God suffered on the cross. Because the one who suffered on the cross was Jesus in his humanity. And you have the Roman Christianity that they believe in Jesus having a nature of being fully man and fully God. They say incarnation means rather that the Son of God lived his divine human life in and through his human mind and body at every point. Maximizing his identification and empathy with those who he came to save and drawing on divine resources to transcend the human limits of knowledge and energy only when particular requirement of the Father's will so dictated. And they say that he did and endured everything including his suffering on the cross in the unity of his divine human person. And then we have something called Sabellianism. Sabellianism is to believe that the three roles of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were played by one person. So even Trinitarian Christians, they do not agree on the nature of the Trinity. So Jesus is a controversial figure. People have disagreed about his reality, about the role he played, whether he is part of a triune God or not. And nowadays, we have the Da Vinci Code, which suggests that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. And if you are keeping up with the books, there is a book coming, it's called The Jesus Papers. And this book suggests that the crucifixion was staged, and Jesus did not actually die on the cross. In the midst of all these conflicting theories, views, doctrines, how one can find the truth about Jesus? Because we all agree that it's important to find the truth about Jesus, even though people may not agree about the reality of Jesus, but they are in agreement in respect to the importance of finding the truth about the person who said, know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So how can we know the truth about Jesus? I just would like to share with you a couple of principles, axioms, if you will, when it comes to finding the truth about anything. Principle number one, do not commit emotionally unless you evaluate rationally. We do not commit emotionally to something as the truth except we evaluate it first rationally. When we evaluate rationally matters, data, information, we will be able to determine the authenticity of the information because our emotions have the ability to blur our vision. We become opinionated when we evaluate things emotionally. People have the tendency to read things based on their preconceived notions. I'll give you an example of that. There was a teacher who was teaching his class, and he wrote a statement that says, a woman without her man is nothing. And he asked a male student to write the punctuation. 
So the male student came to the board and he said, a woman, comma, without her man, comma, is nothing. So he put the punctuations based on his preconceived notion. And then the teacher asked a female student to write the punctuation, to punctuate the statement. So that female student put, a woman, colon, without her, comma, man is nothing. So our preconceived notions might determine how we view things and how we read things. Therefore, it's very important for us to evaluate what is available to us with a sense of objectivity. We do not lean toward emotions and preconceived notions. And this reality is also applicable when we want to find the truth about God. And I'm not saying we in our finite minds are able to comprehend God. God is above our level of comprehension. But we can, with our finite mind, distinguish between that which is logical and that which is not. Between that which is erroneous and that which is mysterious. We cannot depend on our hearts in dictating to us what we feel to be the truth. Jeremiah 17:9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. So we cannot always rely on our hearts. So principle number one, or axiom number one about finding out the truth, is to evaluate matters rationally, not emotionally. Axiom number two is to distinguish between implicit and explicit evidences. Explicit evidences are those statements that give us data in a clear form that everybody agrees upon what the statement is telling us. Whereas implicit statements are those statements that give us data, and this data is subject to be interpreted in a variety of ways. And usually this interpretation hinges on personal opinions. And the way to handle explicit information or explicit statements and implicit statements is to understand the truth that is contained in the explicit statements and then use that truth to interpret implicit statements. If we take the preconceived notions that we have and interpret with them what the implicit statement is saying and then take that interpretation and apply it to an explicit statement, then we set up ourselves to missing out on seeing the truth. And people always have different opinions upon many things. You know the statement that says, time heal all wounds? Everybody agrees with that except for the foot doctor. He says, time wounds all heals. <laughs> Now, let's talk about the novel. The novel speaks about many different issues. Some of them are important, some of them are not. I would like to focus on two issues, the Holy Grail and the Council of Nicaea. It proposes that the Holy Grail was Mary Magdalene. She carried the bloodline of Jesus. Jesus was married, according to the movie, to Mary Magdalene. Well, is that a true statement or not? The question that we need to ask ourselves, had Jesus been married, how would that affect our belief system in Jesus? 
Does it have any bearing on our belief system? I can think for uh, Trinitarian Christians, if Jesus were married, that will undermine the authority of the Trinity. Because after all, God cannot be married. And if he had married, would he be married in his human God essence, or only in his human essence, or in a God essence? That will open a can of worms for the church to deal with. But for Islamic theology, had Jesus been married, that will not affect our belief system in Jesus. Therefore the Quran is actually silent concerning the marital status of Jesus. Because whether he was married or not, it does not affect the belief system of Muslims. Muslims believe that Jesus was a human being. God created him miraculously without having a biological father. And he was commissioned as a messenger of God to the Israelites, and he performed many astonishing miracles. There was an attempt to kill him, but God saved him and raised him alive to him. And he will return at the end of the time of the tribulation period to kill the Antichrist. And there is a Quranic truth in 4109 that suggests when he comes back, a great number of the Jews will believe in him. And during his reign, people will live in peace and harmony. And he is the Messiah, but he is not the Savior. Which means, for Muslims, part of their saving faith is to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, to believe in him as a messenger of God, but the Savior is not the blood of Jesus, the Savior is God himself. And this truth, you can support it even from the Bible. It says in Isaiah 43.10, God is speaking, and beside me there is no other Savior. It says, and beside me there is no other Savior. And that brings us for the doctrine of propitiation. Have you heard of the doctrine of propitiation? For those of us who are not familiar with that, this doctrine says, at one moment, God had great anger toward sin. The sin of the human beings, the sin of Adam, and the sins of the human beings. And God, in His providential care, sent down His Son, according to the Christian Trinitarian theology, and when his son was on the cross, at one moment he said, God, God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, God channeled his just wrath on Jesus. And the price of sin is death, therefore Jesus died for the sin of people, and God put his wrath on Jesus. So they say the cross propitiated God. That is the concept of the propitiation. In Islam we believe that God is so merciful that he does not have to release his wrath on anyone to spare you from his wrath. He said, my mercy exceeds my wrath. When you repent to God, God will put all of your sins in a file and he will click delete. They're gone. The fact of the matter, however, Jesus will come back, and that is an Islamic theology, but when he will come back, 
it's not the rapture that Christianity teaches. So even though we both agree upon him coming back, but the nature of his return varies. In Islamic theology we say he will come back to finish his mission to proclaim there is only one God and to kill the anti-Christ. And nowadays if you are noticing he is back with us in thoughts. Many people have not thought about Jesus much. But nowadays Jesus is making it to the news every other day. Due to the Da Vinci Code, the Holy Grail, the Holy Blood, the Jesus Papers and other writings. And I think this is my only personal observation that God is bringing Jesus to our minds as a prelude that he will be coming back physically soon. How soon that is, this is God's timeline. It's not something that we can give years on it. And the movie also addresses the Trinity. It talks about the Council of Nicaea. And in the Council of Nicaea it says that Jesus was voted as a divine being. From Islamic theology, I would have to agree with that from Islamic perspective. Because Islam teaches that Jesus is a human being who was born miraculously. He is a messenger of God and God is a one person being. He is one in number. He is one in person. He is one in uniqueness. So I would have to agree that the early church viewed Jesus as a human being, as a messenger of God. That is the Islamic theology. But does actually the Bible say that Jesus is the Son of God? Does the Bible say that Jesus is one person of a triune God? That is a very important question for us to answer. See, the Bible says Jesus is Son of God, but not God the Son. Many people took the term Son of God and made it God the Son. The Bible does not say that Jesus is God the Son. It says that He is the Son of God. And the Bible never mentions anything about the Holy Trinity. Actually, you will not find the word Trinity in the Bible. You will find it in the Quran. God says in the Quran, do not claim a Trinity, say God is one. The New Encyclopedia Britannica, 1985 edition, volume 11, page 928 says, Neither the word Trinity nor the explicit doctrine appears in the New Testament. Having said that, how about the biblical verses that are used to support that Jesus is God? How many of us know John 1.1? What does it say in John 1.1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God or a God. Was God according to one translation. According to another translation, the New World translation, it says, as the Word was a God. Does it really make a difference how it was translated? It makes a huge difference. Because when you add the the, the definite article and without the definite article that it changes the meaning therefore there's many ways this verse is translated one of them the logos was divine what God was the word was and he was the same as God those are different translations and even if he is giving the name God 
Does that make him one person of a triune God? Remember in the Bible, other individuals are given the title God. It says in Exodus 4.16 to Moses, you will serve as a God to him. So, and him was a God, and him was God, makes a big difference in the final result. And how this translation came about? Came about. I think when the translators try to translate original manuscripts, they translate what is available to them based on what they feel is the truth. So people who are Trinitarian translate this verse as, as the word was God. Whereas the, new, the Unitarian Christians, they translate it as the word was a God. That is fine. But then if a person uses his personal understanding to translate a text, then he cannot use his text to prove his theology because that is called circular reasoning in logic. Let us take another verse, where it says in John 20, 28, In answer, Thomas said to him, meaning he said to Jesus after Jesus came to the disciples in his risen body, he said, My Lord and my God. So now Thomas is addressing Jesus as my God. Does that make Jesus one person of the Trinity? We have to ask ourselves this question. Did Thomas believe that Jesus was one person of a triune God? In order to answer this question, we need to view how the Bible uses the term God. People of high authority are given the title God. For example, in Deuteronomy 10.17 it says, For the Lord your God is God of gods. And in Psalm 82.1, in the middle of the gods, he judges. And in John 10.35, now Jesus speaking, he says, As you know, that the scripture cannot be changed. So if these people who received God's message were called gods, then why would it be blasphemy for me to be called the Son of God? So Jesus here is making a point to the Pharisees that people who are received the message of God are called gods. That does not make them part of gods. And Jesus who received the message from his father, that he, if he is called the son of God, that does not mean he is part of God. No one should understand that he was saying he is part of God. And Jesus himself said in John 17:3 that they might know you, you refers to his father, where he says, my father and your father, my Lord and your Lord, that they might know you, the only true God. So Jesus, he says that the only true God is his Lord, his father. So then, when we look at John 20, 28, and we understand that Thomas is saying to him, my God, does Thomas at that time, uh, did he understood that Jesus was one person of the Trinity? I doubt it, because it says in John, also in John here it says, people of high authority, or the paraphrasing, people who receive the message of God are called gods. And John understood that, otherwise he would not put it in his gospel. Therefore, John 28 is translated in the New Living Translation that it says, my Lord and my God 
psalmist exclaimed, you know, when you see something of I, you say, my God, that does not mean you are calling that thing to be your God. Let's move to Romans 9, 5. It says, of Christ who is God over all, forever praised. That is a translation. Another translation, and this is the revised standard version, it says, and of their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Period. God who is over all be blessed forever. So one translation is translated to give us the understanding that Jesus is God. Another translation is translated in a way that gives us the understanding that Jesus is not. And even if Jesus is called God, that does not make him one person of the Trinity, because according to the biblical language, people of high authority are given the title God. Another verse, we find it in Hebrew 108. It says, But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And this verse also translated in the New World Translation and the New Revised Standard. But with reference to the Son, God is your throne forever and ever. So again, the translations do not give us the same data. And if that is the case, we need to look at some biblical verses that really define for us the truth. And we take, for example, 43.10, Isaiah 43.10, it says, Before me there was no God formed, neither shall be after me, I even I am the Lord, all capital letters. And when you read the Bible and the word Lord is all capital, that means it refers to Yahweh, it refers to Jehovah. I am the Lord and beside me there is no Savior. So this is an explicit statement. In Galatians 3.2 it says, But God is one. And in 1 Corinthians 8.4 it says, There is no God but one. And in 1 Corinthians 8.6 it says, There is only one God, the Father. And that is the writing of Paul. There is only one God, the Father. Remember, Paul never heard of the term Trinity. And in John 4.23, Jesus said, True worshippers will worship the Father. In Matthew 6.9, it says, Pray to the Father. And when Jesus was tempted by Satan, he said to him, Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him, For the scriptures say, You must worship the Lord your God. Worship only him. So which scripture Jesus was referring to? I would believe he was referring to the scripture that you find in Deuteronomy 6.4 where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. So all of those are explicit statements. And to say that Jesus is equal to God runs contrary with John 5.9 where it says, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. Having said that, the work of Dan Brown and the work of other authors, historians, and investigators give us the opportunity to examine what we believe in. We as human beings have the tendency to accept the belief system that is passed down to us 
without troubling ourselves to, un to investigate it is authenticity. Therefore, Bamberg Asconi, a historian, and he has a book called Christianity and History, said, Most Christians today accept the Trinity without troubling themselves too much over the details. Something so long established can be treated as a piece of sublime mysticism. And then he went on to say, the fourth century produced the basic formula that there were three divine persons in one divine essence. But also this formula did not stop many of the arguments and many of the theological arguments between theologians concerning the reality of Jesus. Therefore you have the Menephysite Christians, the Nestorian Christians, the Jacobite Church, all of them disagree concerning the nature of Jesus. But in my humble opinion, I believe that God in His providential care brought about the tremendous success of the novel and the movie to stir our interest in the truth for us to do our part in investigating what we believe in in order to arrive to the truth. But bear in mind as you are hearing me saying those words what Allah, God, Jehovah said in the Quran in 548 For each we have appointed a divine law and a style had Allah willed, He could have made you one religion, but He did not, in order to test you in which He has given to you. So vie with one another in good works. Unto Allah will all return, and He will then inform you of that wherein you used to differ about. I'm not suggesting that they are truths as much as they are truth seekers. 